The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm alright, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. And welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. We're going to turn our attention to a uh, new book by um, veteran Forbes journalist. Boy, am I got these new teeth and can't talk. Former Forbes journalist Dirk Smiley has written... uh, a book, his latest book is The Business of Tomorrow, The Visionary Life of Harry Guggenheim from Aviation and Rocketry to the Creation of an Art Dynasty. And uh, Dirk joins me by phone. Hi, Dirk. Welcome to the show. Hello, Tom. How are you? I'm doing just fine. I was so worried about pronouncing your name, I couldn't pronounce anything else. Well, uh, sounds like your teeth are working just fine. <laughs> well, we're going we're to make it one way or the other. But... This, I don't know why, but this seems like a departure from the kinds of things that you typically write and, and might be expected to write. What got you on to the life of Harry Guggenheim? Uh, that's true, Tom. Yeah, I've been a journalist at Forbes for about a decade before I joined uh, a Wall Street firm called Guggenheim Partners. And when I went to uh, Guggenheim Partners, one of the first things I started doing was assembling some uh, family business history because there really had not been any done at that point. And for, um, you know, for a Wall Street firm, I mean, the family business history was not kind of like a central part of what they needed as far as, um, you know, communications and internal communications, that kind of thing. But we would get calls from um, potential clients overseas, like, say, in Switzerland, where the Guggenheims were from originally, and they would ask for background on the family, and there just really wasn't anything written at that time. So I started doing that, and in the in the course of writing up these kind of mini case studies of businesses that the Guggenheims had been involved with, the name Harry Guggenheim kept coming up over and over and over again. <clears throat> so at a certain point, I um, spoke to the founder of the firm about the possibility of doing a book on Harry's life because I was... I was sort of dumbfounded to find that there had never been any kind of a book ever done on him, in spite of the fact that there have been many, many books done on the Guggenheim family. <clears throat> and certainly, 
you know, a couple of different members like Peggy Guggenheim, who had a very um, eclectic wildlife in the art world. Uh, there have been many books done on her, but I was I was surprised to find that none had ever been done on Harry, um, given all of his contributions to uh, Guggenheim businesses and then just his contributions to uh, the space race and aviation and building the Guggenheim Museum. I was sort of astounded to find that uh, no full-length book had ever been done on his life. So it seemed like uh, seemed like something that was um, wanted and needed. And um, so I started that a few years ago, and it came out uh, just uh, last month. Well, you know, it's it. It was funny when I first found out about this book. Um, the name Harry didn't ring any bells to me at all. You know, we know the first and last names of, of a lot of American business titans from, you know, the, the last century. Certainly John D. Rockefeller and, and others come to mind. Um, and, and yet Harry, I've heard the name Guggenheim, of course, you know, associated with the museums. But Harry just didn't seem to be very well known. Yeah, he's he's kind of buried in the great histories of the Guggenheim family. You know, the first big kind of compendium of Guggenheim family history was uh, in the late 30s, and then there were three or four um, subsequent ones that have come out, and each one of these books on the Guggenheims tended to be about a um, the collection of characters uh, within the Guggenheim family, and there's quite a number of Guggenheims out there now. Um, but I think Harry stood out because he kind of was the the torchbearer between the old generation and the, and the new generation of Guggenheims. Because around the turn of the century, the turn of last century, uh, the Guggenheims were certainly not known for anything to do with art. They were a giant, um, ran a giant mining conglomerate. At one point, it was the largest mining company in the world. And they became known as the, uh, you know, kind of like the American Rothschilds for all the wealth that they amassed in their uh, mining operations. You know, gold, silver, copper, lead, you name it, they were, they were into that metal. Uh, but then as time went on, like up, up to around the time of the, um, of the Great Depression, um, they kind of shifted gears because, um, first of all, you know, the family lost a lot of its uh, fortune during the Depression. But also, um, the head of the family, who was Harry's father, Daniel, uh, he died in 1930. And at that point, Harry uh, took over as the, the family patriarch. And at that point, uh, the Guggenheims started to become known more for their philanthropy and their uh, social impact investing than, than they did for their, um, you know, kind of making money in the, in the mining world. So Harry started to distinguish. I think he kind of changed, started to change the Guggenheim brand uh, into one that was uh, becoming known for its contributions to uh, aviation and then the space race, and then later, um, of course, building the Guggenheim Museum. But uh, this book is kind of a uh, sort of a mini sweep of the 20th century, starting with uh, all the Guggenheim's activities in mining and then how the family evolved into these other businesses. And uh, I try to, you know, it, I mean, it is, a, it is a, basically a business biography, but it doesn't get too into the weeds 
in terms of the businesses, I, I try to just kind of present some of the highlights and some of the lessons from uh, all these different businesses that the family was involved with, particularly, you know, Harry's efforts. And, uh, and then to bring it up to uh, present day, uh, past the museum, but up to the point where, you know, now Guggenheim is probably becoming as much known for the museum as it is for the, uh, for the Wall Street Company. So, uh, and I, I would be tempted to say, Dirk, that, that they're known for the, uh, for the art even more. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true, um, both for the reason that you mentioned earlier when you talked about multiple museums. You know, you've got the museum in New York as uh, sort of the flagship. It's actually a World Heritage Site now. <laughs> I think there's only two in, in New York, the other being the Statue of Liberty. And then you have the Guggenheim in uh, Bilbao, uh, Spain. Uh, you've got the the big uh, Abu Dhabi museum that's being built. Uh, well, I guess the construction is about to start after many years of, of delays. And that uh, I think that is scheduled to open in 2026. Uh, so you have this kind of global art brand, uh, and you also have you know the, the 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 uniqueness of the Guggenheim Museum itself. I mean, so many people come to the museum really just to see the museum, you know, <laughs> regardless of of uh, of the artwork that's being shown uh, inside. Uh, so um, so the the uh, I think the the museum sort of uh, doubled as a kind of an architectural milestone, but also um, you know an important place where new types of modern art is uh, is shown. And which came first for the uh, Guggenheim family, uh, a, a a love of art or philanthropy? I would say the philanthropy uh, came first, Tom, because um, at a certain point in, in the life of Harry's father, um, Daniel, this was like maybe in the oh, early to mid-1920s, you know, Daniel, he was the head of the family, he had amassed all this wealth, and he's really thinking about his legacy and so with some inspiration from his son, Harry, he began to um, put a lot of money into the uh, sort of engineering and science and technology behind aviation. And that was a time when aviation was still, uh, you know, very much a fledgling um, sort of industry in, in this country. So they put, they, they instantly, I mean, I think when they, when they, Funded the uh, the first aviation school at uh, New York University. It really kind of put them on the map as philanthropists in the world of aviation. And then, as time went on, uh, Harry uh, later began funding the experiments of Robert Goddard, who's the famous rocket scientist, um, and Goddard's innovations, which included uh, the idea of a multi-stage rocket, and also just the, you know the, just the fact of using um, liquid propulsion, liquid fuel opposed to solid fuel, you know, those innovations kind of paved the way for the space age. So the Guggenheims became known for their philanthropy in aviation and then rocketry um, well, before the, uh, well before the museum uh, came along. It seems like kind of a natural uh, progression from aviation, which was new and, and exciting and interesting, and, and looking for angel investors, which, you know, of course, Harry was. Um, it seems like it's kind of natural to go from aviation to rocketry as the space race started, you know, the, the very early days of rocketry and then into the space race. 
But then jumping to art almost seems like a retirement gig. Yeah, it's a it's a very kind of nonlinear nonlinear yeah. transition for sure. Um, yeah, the the art museum came about because Solomon Guggenheim, who was Harry's uncle, uh, had been collecting art for many years, and then he got very interested in this kind of niche area of um, uh, sort of a subset of modern art that was known at the time as non-objective painting. And so uh, at one point he had over a thousand pieces in his collection and he decided to create a museum um, to house this collection. And then after he was gone, you know, he thought the museum would, would, would continue to show his work, which it did. But he died uh, 10 years before the museum even opened. Mm. And so um, uh, Harry was put on the board initially just, uh, you know, as a family member. But uh, he took more control and then became chairman of the board and oversaw the construction of the museum when some, some controversies emerged early on with the museum's first director and also just the fact that um, the museum at the time, you know, pre before the Guggenheim building, uh, when it was housed in just a, a more conventional building, um, it, it, uh, it showed this work that was very uh, kind of niche-oriented and the museum had been had become a nonprofit at that point, and so there was a lot of complaints from the art world about you know um, it's nonprofit that Guggenheim is not really living up to their nonprofit obligations. So um, anyway, I, I have a chapter on the building of the museum that goes into the controversies that uh, sort of swirled around the early Guggenheim, and Harry kind of um, basically resolved a lot of these issues and uh, and then oversaw the construction of the museum until it opened in uh, 1959. So uh, you're right, though. It was a major shift for the Guggenheims to be known as these kind of, like, tactical philanthropists in aviation, rocketry, uh, and then to go from that to the the, the family being known much more by the museum. so I mean, it's uh, it's just everything seemed so solid. Uh, you know, I mean, they have this uh, uh, mining business with precious metals, and then, you know, the age of, um, you know, the space age starts coming along, and, and the age mm-hmm. of aviation and rocketry. And that all seems, you know, pardon the phrase, down to earth. And then all of a sudden there's like <laughs> this, this real esoteric kind of... Uh, wandering off the point <laughs> <laughs> it's it's true it's uh i would say the one thing that connects all of that is uh is harry's life because he was the guy who really over was, was overseeing what the family was doing in terms of its business uh investments but also its particularly its philanthropy so um, if you didn't have the thread of Harry Guggenheim running through all these businesses, you know, we're talking, <laughs> I mean, aviation, the space age, and then co-founding uh, Newsday uh, with his wife, Alicia Patterson, um, you know, that became like the, the most successful suburban newspaper in the country. Dirk, and then on, I, yes. I hate to interrupt, but I have to take a break here. And I, this Please. is such a fascinating story. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk more? Absolutely. Great. My guest is Dirk Smiley. He's the author of uh, The Business of Tomorrow, The Visionary Life of Harry Guggenheim. We're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well, so don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We'll be right back. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom. This is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know, Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We can continue with our conversation about the visionary life of Harry Guggenheim from author Dirk Smiley, who joins me by phone. Dirk, uh, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. No, my pleasure, Tom. It's uh, fascinating to hear uh, both the various characters have been on the show, and they all seem to have a, a very good things to say about you. <laughs> well, those are the ones I picked. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Wise choice. Hey, and, and that reminds me, uh, Publishers Weekly had this to say, um, jazz age eccentric, eccentric multimillionaire Harry Guggenheim comes to life in this deep dive from Dirk Smiley. Jazz age eccentric multimillionaire. That's an interesting turn of phrase. We were talking about in the last segment how unusual it was that this uh, the story of Harry Guggenheim goes from aviation and rocketry to the creation of an art dynasty. But where does jazz fit into all of this? Well, uh, Harry was in his prime in uh, during the. Pr- during the jazz age in the 20s and the 30s, and that was, uh, as you well know, as you well know, Tom, that was a, a period in American history when most most people in this country were were broke or close to it. <laughs> right, right. So Harry, uh, you know, meanwhile Harry is uh, carrying on the the family uh, philanthropy in some some interesting ways, um, and you know his friendship with Lindbergh played a major role in that as well, because during the Jazz Age, um, you know, Lindbergh, of course, was the most famous man in America, was really the most famous person in the world after his flight in 1927 from New York to Paris. And Lindbergh was famous, but he really didn't care about getting rich, whereas Harry was rich, but he really didn't care all that much about fame. So the two of them made a kind of an odd pair. Um, they were really best friends for many years, and I think you know their friendship continued right up until Harry's death in 1971. But it was Lindbergh who was kind of like a, a talent scout for Harry in some uh, degree because um, uh, Lindbergh had cultivated this relationship with Robert Goddard, the father of the Rocket Age, and the guy who Harry uh, bankrolled for many years. And it was because of Lindbergh's um, uh, assessments and sort of help understanding uh, what Goddard was doing as this kind of next uh, upward extension of aviation, you know, from flying to flying rockets. Um, you know, that relationship is something that I chronicle in the book, and that really took place during the uh, the Jazz Age, when uh, you know people people living on the uh, Gold Coast of Long Island. Uh, where all of these household names, you know, the Woolworths and the uh, Phipps and uh, the Bloomingdales, the, um, you know, uh, the, the Whitney's, um, all of these kind of jazz age uh, big family uh, 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 names were people that lived in and around that area. And those were the types of people that uh, Harry and... Uh, both his first wife and his second wife uh, would kind of rub shoulders with. But he, he really was not that interested in the fame uh, part of things. You know, he had the wealth, and I think he Harry felt a big uh, burden on his shoulders in terms of carrying on the family tradition and maintaining the, the Guggenheim's um, reputation at a time when it was shifting into all these other businesses. 
uh, ultimately, you know, winding up with the museum. So uh, the, the jazz age is kind of the uh, the background for uh, a good part of this book, uh, which was you know kind of set in the middle, and actually to the beginning and the middle of the of the twentieth century. You know, there's. Uh, Harry is so fascinating because of some of the things that he bankrolled. Um, you know, his his funding of, of Robert Goddard's work, um, as, as you point out, the father of modern rocketry. Did Harry understand the things that he was supporting? I mean, you talk about the visionary life. Did he... Did he understand the things he was supporting, or did he just know that the which things were good investments? That is a great question, Tom, because you know that's a question that should be posed to every uh, major philanthropist today. Do you really understand what you are funding? you know? Yeah, and uh, I think in Harry's day, he definitely did. But, of course, aviation at that time was a little bit easier to understand, you know. <laughs> I mean, in, in the case of Robert Goddard, um, you know, today's uh, rocket test with Elon Musk and Richard Branson and Bezos, you know, these are unbelievably, you know, incredible feats of technology that combine physics and uh, metal science, uh, astrophysics, I mean, it was it rockets were simpler to understand in those days in the sense that um you know i have a scene where robert goddard is sitting in his workshop down in uh, new mexico uh, uh taking tin cans and cutting them into strips of metal that he could then use to assemble prototypes of his next uh, rocket launch you know so um <laughs> i'm not that's not to say that they were unsophisticated uh, the test that he was running, but um, they were—they, I think, they were easier to to understand in those days, uh, because you, you really were just focusing on the propulsion systems, and um, uh, of course, Harry really wanted Goddard's rockets to rise to higher and higher elevations because he thought that would be the only way that the military would get interested in rocketry, and and uh, Goddard uh, really just wanted to focus on reliability of the engines because. You know, just like with Lindbergh's flight in 1927, I mean, he was able to pull that off because of the reliability of his engine, um, and so that's that's kind of uh, that's what Goddard wanted to focus on. Not so much hitting higher and higher uh, heights. So there was a little bit of a, a kind of discord over that between Harry and Goddard. But basically, Harry's overall outlook on philanthropy was that uh, philanthropists should not be like absentee landlords when it comes to doling out uh, funding, uh, meaning, um, you know, uh, if you if some of the giver doesn't go along with the gift, then the gift doesn't mean quite as much. So um, I think in, in Harry's day, he was intensely interested in the projects that, that he was funding, even the uh, museum. And I, I don't uh, I don't think he really understood modern art all that well, but he got very smart people around him. To uh, to explain it to him. Well, that you know that I, I was going to extend that that question because of what Publishers Weekly said. Jazz age eccentric multimillionaire was. It, it makes Harry sound like like a millionaire playboy. Mm-hmm. Was he a pretty serious guy? Could you know? Did 
did he have ventures that that made money? Was he a good businessman? He he really was. Uh, and you know, when I was at Forbes, I really didn't come across anyone quite like Harry Guggenheim who could, um, you know, for example, start a uh, start a thoroughbred horse racing stable from scratch. You know, meaning one horse, and and literally in about twenty years, he had uh, he had the highest earning. Um, Horse racing stable in America, uh, 1959. I mean, of course, it helps when you start out with money. But. <laughs> it certainly does, and I think most of his competitors, uh, like the Vanderbilts, for example, I mean, they put you know a vast fortune into their horse racing stable, and you know they also wound up at the Kentucky Derby a lot. So yeah, without question, um, the money, uh, having a lot of money to start with, was hugely important. Um, but of course, as Anderson Cooper said in his new book about his own family, the Vanderbilts, you know, he said the Vanderbilt uh, family uh, possessed the largest fortune ever squandered. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and he made he makes no bones about that. I mean, he just, it's he kind of makes a factual case for it. So Harry was kind of the opposite of that. I think a better example, though, when you're talking about business acumen. And doing the things that he did, like using alternative metrics in business, he kind of would come up with his own measures to determine uh, what to invest and, and how. Um, Newsday was a newspaper that he founded, co-founded with his wife. He bought the paper for a um, oh a very small sum, I think something around seventy-five thousand, and he put over the course of seven or eight years maybe a little less than a million into it before it started breaking even. When he sold the paper, shortly before he died, he sold it for $75 million. So that was a pretty good return on capital. And won say. a Pulitzer Prize along the way. This is true. Not him this personally, but... That's right. That's right. Yeah, and he, you know, he hired Bill Moyers to be his publisher, and Moyers was there for several years. They had a falling out at the end, but um, it's hard to Bill imagine Moyers. having a falling out with Bill Moyers. <laughs> <laughs> I am sure that I am sure that that is the only time. I'm, I'm sure that's the only job Bill Moyers has ever been fired from. Um, <laughs> but as he, as Moyers himself says, you know, it was a it was a blessing in disguise because after leaving Newsday, you know, he's gone on to have this absolutely amazing career in broadcasting. I think he's won uh, 36 Peabody Awards. Um, so, you know, he's, uh, he's he did very well after Newsday. And, and it, you said something about maybe Harry Guggenheim really didn't understand some of the art he was promoting, and he surrounded himself with good people, which the most successful people are really good at. Um, but do you think he understood at least the trend associated with modern art, that it was something that was coming, that was going to be big? That um, Did he have that kind of vision? Uh, I think he did, in, uh, particularly in the sense of being sensitive to what the marketplace was saying at the time, because these... Um, People who had been sort of very marginal a few decades earlier were suddenly commanding huge sums of money. People like Kandinsky and you know these other folks that are associated with this um, the non-objective uh, painting. Matter of fact, the Guggenheim has a big Kandinsky uh, exhibit going on right now 
and um, I so I think Harry respected the fact that the marketplace was saying that these artists were um, you know uh, were, were of great value um, but I think also um, what Harry cared a lot about was particularly after all these controversies in the early stages of the Guggenheim um, Museum or I guess before it became the Guggenheim um, he uh, he was concerned about the credibility and the uh, sort of the integrity, the cultural integrity of the Guggenheim. So he made a lot of reforms, I think, that instilled those values into the museum. And those are the kinds of values uh, that translated well into the Wall Street firm. And I think that's why um, the Wall Street firm was able to be created uh, you know, from this from this Guggenheim brand that Harry more or less created, because uh, when you think about it, if you, you want to trust people um, with your money, you want people that uh, you know have a legacy or have some kind of a reputation that you know something about. And I think over the years, the um, the credibility and the trust uh, that was built up in the museum uh, was was sort of translated into the Wall Street firm. When they created that uh, about 20 years ago, so well, that's um, why I wanted to ask about Harry's uh, business acumen and his uh, focus and seriousness, because it's easy to imagine someone like Harry, who basically just is born into and inherits a vast fortune and then gets involved in aviation and rocketry and art. Those sound like hobbies. I think that uh, aviation absolutely was a hobby before he got uh, interested in uh, turning it into a, um, a kind of a, a philanthropic uh, focus. I should say it's it was philanthropy, but then it was also um, you know the the fund that he created was a kind of a quasi uh, public private partnership. It, it was sort of uh, I guess what we what we call today social impact investing. So it wasn't like doling out grants it, just for their own sake. It was um, investing in things like R&D that a lot of mom-and-pop uh, operators in aviation just couldn't afford at the time. I mean, a good good example is um, out at Caltech, he funded a, a wind tunnel. And uh, a wind tunnel might seem like sort of like an obscure thing to put money behind, but people like William Boeing... Uh, who were like early entrepreneurs in aviation. He was a very small-time operator, uh, just starting off, you know, in in the uh, airplane manufacturing business. So to be able to have free access to a wind tunnel where he could test all of his his new uh, wing designs and you know various other uh, aspects of uh, innovation in the new planes that he was creating, you know, that was kind of invaluable for him not to be able to uh, not to have to spend that that R and D cost. Um, as he developed his uh, his business, so um, I would say you know uh, it, that was certainly a hobby initially, and then of course we all know what happened with commercial a- aviation over the decades since. Uh, horse racing was definitely a hobby that he turned into a good business. Um, the newspaper I would not say is an, an example of that because the newspaper was basically created as a way to keep uh, his wife busy, uh, <laughs> you know. And also, um, I think... I That's think not Harry, the dumbest uh, idea he ever had. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think his wife agreed. You know, she came from a very famous newspapering family, 
and she was uh, she was she she, she was um, potentially going to become part of her father's newspaper empire when his, when her father passed away. So it was actually a good idea to get some newspapering experience in preparation for you know this possible future role. But I don't think either Harry or his wife Alicia ever realized what a um, what a massive success, at least at that time, Newsday would become. Um, but, you know, people in New York City were migrating out to the suburbs, out to Long Island, so you had a growth uh, population going on. You had businesses relocating out there. And, uh, you know, Long, Long Island also just was this collection of little hamlets and small towns. There wasn't really any uh, kind of one major media organization connecting all of them, and Newsday played that role as well. Well, it's it's fascinating, all of these different things. Were you surprised when you started digging into these things, um, this, this background of Harry Guggenheim? Uh, were you, because there hadn't been a lot written or collected, were you just constantly surprised by the things you uncovered? Uh, I really was, Tom. I was uh, I was particularly amazed at what a dangerous situation he put himself in when he became ambassador to Cuba, because you know Harry had this uh, an, yet another side to his life, which was public service. He was an aviator in World War One and World War Two, and then he was uh, chair of the Crime Commission in New York City. He tried to make um, uh, reforms in the criminal justice system, but then he was. Um, uh, he, he was also ambassador to Cuba at a time when, well, really it was the birth of the Cuban Revolution on the island, uh, 1929, 1930, 31. And um, it was a very dangerous place to be. There was almost weekly attempts on the life of the um, this uh, dictator president at the time, uh, Geraldo Machado. And, of course, Harry, being the U.S. ambassador, was associated with uh, Machado's reign, even though at the time Harry was secretly negotiating between uh, the opposition groups and Machado to try to figure out a, a way for Machado to exit, but to finish out his term, which would be required and for him to, you know, get his cooperation. Um, but there were, uh, there were not direct attempts on Harry's life, but um, there's good evidence to show that there was a price put on his head at one point, and he could have very easily been assassinated uh, at some point you know, later, particularly in the last year or two of the of the Cuban Revolution. But I had no idea that any of that had gone on. I mean, I knew he was ambassador to Cuba, but there really had been nothing done on that period in his life. So that um, that was, all of that was, was you know... Well, our attention, whenever somebody mentions Cuba, our attention almost always turns to Kennedy and Khrushchev. Right. Absolutely. I mean, we we don't even think that there was, you know, life in Cuba before that. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the jazz age, Cuba was a place that a lot of Americans went to uh, to uh, you know take a weekend or spend a holiday and be able to uh, drink as much alcohol as they wanted to during Prohibition. And and uh, they brought a lot of cool music back. Exactly, exactly, yeah, that whole uh, Afro-Cuban sound uh, was developing at that time, and that was yet another contribution. But, um, yeah, I think Cuba was kind of seen as this, like, almost like Hawaii, you know, it's it's a faraway place, 
uh, yet with all the American amenities, and and Cuba, you know, is much closer, of course, right off the right off our coast. So it was really a getaway for a lot of people at that time, you know, 20s and 30s. But um, it was also, you know, also became a very dangerous place to be uh, during the Machado years. And uh, I don't think that was Harry's finest uh, hour. But of course, he had no diplomatic experience. Um, he knew a lot about business, and he had been very effective in business and philanthropy. But um, parachuting in to the island of Cuba at the beginning of the revolution, um, I'm not sure he had much chance of uh, trying to resolve anything. <laughs> did Did he take other risks that that either worked out or didn't? Well, um, you know, later in life, um, he did enlist during World War II, uh, you know, and he was in his 50s at that point. Uh, it's not, you know, he really had nothing to prove, and he didn't, uh, he didn't have to do it, but um, he wanted to, and he was stationed on an aircraft carrier uh, out in the Japanese islands, um, and this was a time when, uh, you know, kamikaze pilots were uh, hitting U.S. ships still with pretty good regularity. Uh, so he went on a, on several bombing missions over the Sakashima Islands uh, near the end of World War II, mm. and he um, at least once w- uh, went back um, uh, into a um, uh, an Avenger aircraft, which was a bomber taking off from these these flat tops, and he served as a turret gunner, which. Um, is a you know it's it's not the best assignment i mean you're basically exposed in a bubble of glass and if you get a pursuit plate plane behind you um you know you're going to be uh you're probably going to be hit a lot of those pilots came back with their turret gunners in not very good shape uh so um i don't know how much real danger harry was in at that point because they i think the sakashima islands had already been had already been uh, strafed and bombed, but he did take uh, one or more missions uh, over that area during World War II, and uh, and came back safe. But I would say that was a um, that was a, a risk that he took that uh, probably didn't have to, but uh, he hadn't really flown any bombing missions in World War One. He had he had served more of a he had been more of a tactician, uh, somebody who went out and inspected seaplane stations. Uh, at the beginning of the of the war in the in the first world war, and uh, was kind of a quasi administrative job. So I think he uh, he saw the opportunity to do something more exciting during World War II, um, albeit uh, certainly more risky. Well, Dirk, we're going to have to end it there. I, I'm I'm having so much fun, and I feel like we've just scratched the surface. So. Um, yeah. Let me let me do this very quickly. I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you, about the book, and your work, past, present, and future. Uh, Dirk, do you have a website? Uh, well, you know, Tom, I I have a Twitter page uh, which okay. is uh, called Absolute Smiley, uh, spelled like it sounds, but not how it's actually spelled. So it's Absolute, like the vodka, and then S M I L E Y. Um, so I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn. If you'd like to know any more about the book, uh, Pegasus Books has got a, a good uh, website uh, for the book, and it's got uh, you know it's got reviews and it's got a summary of the book and uh, and stuff like that. Well, Dirk Smiley, so thanks so much, and keep up the good work. 
Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places. So be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to AmericanSchismBook.com. 
MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. All the Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. There are many shows on the air which are basically interview shows, and they start out in a very austere setting. Uh, There's the interviewer, he sits behind a desk, and in the background somewhere, some figure in the news sits. He's later in the show blinded by a spotlight. I like present one of these shows. They start off very dramatically, something like this. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Wallace, Nightline. Our guest in the studio tonight is Dr. Warner von Warner, one of the many German missile scientists involved in our American missile program. Dr. von Warner, I suppose the question most often asked you, you were involved in the German missile program. You're now involved in our missile program. Was the fact that you were involved in the German missile program a matter of political conviction, or was this political expediency on your part? <laughs> oh boy, that one, huh? <laughs> Actually, I didn't, I didn't have that much to do with it, to tell you the truth. Um, this is back around 1940. I was working at a beer garden in Stuttgart. <laughs> and like on Friday night, you know, the waitresses and the waiters, we'd go to one of the girls' pads, you know, and uh, <laughs> order some pizzas and some schnapps and get half gassed, you know. <laughs> and I used to fool around with these inventions, you know, and I'd take this tin can and put a firecrack underneath it, and I like the firecrack, and the thing go four or five feet up in the air, you know. And everybody'd say, what the hell was that? Or what a nut that Warner is. Somebody want to get Reiner's hat, you know, something like that. Except there's one party, a little guy walks over, he's got a little mustache. And a... <laughs> Piece of hair falling on his <laughs> He says, hey, that, uh, that was interesting what you did with a, with a tin can there. <laughs> but uh, what, uh, what causes that? Eh? <laughs> I said, well, see, that's, um, for every action, there's a reaction, you see. And the, the force of the firecracker is it's, see, it's, first of all, it starts toward the floor. But the top of your can, see, it's, every time I do it, it jumps forward. He says, what, uh, what do you call that thing there? I said, that's, uh, that's a rocket. 
It's named after my landlord, Irving Arkett. See, I was, I was about three months behind in the end, you know, and comes a knock at the door, and he says, Look, Ronner, you know, you gotta knock off with the firecrackers in the middle of the night. You know, because the neighbors are complaining. And don't hand me the Madame Curie bit, you know what I mean? What her landlord wanted to do about her rent, that's his business. I want my rent, see? I said, look, I'm working on an invention. If it works out, I'll name it after you. He says, you're going to call it an Irving? <laughs> so, no, I'm going to call it a rocket. So anyway, the guy at the party, little mustache, piece of hair falling in his eyes. He says, that would make a terrific weapon, you know that? I said, well... You'd have to get out on top of the guy. <laughs> and, you know, you'd have to hit him in the face or something like that. With, with a tin can to really hurt him. I think your big problem is going to be getting that close to the guy, you know? He says, no, no, what if, what if we took a hundred firecrackers and a great big tin can, see? I said, well, we saw that, but your problem there is, see, by the time you light the fuse on the last firecracker, <laughs> he said, look, the, the, reason, the reason I'm asking you all this, I'm headed to German people. I said, oh. <laughs> I said, so, you know, congratulations. I, you know. I hadn't seen a paper in a couple of days, so I took a version. <laughs> he says, would you like to be involved in our MISA program? You know. I said, well, you know, I got a pretty good thing going at the, at the beer garden. You know. He says, look. <laughs> he says, it's a civil service job. <laughs> Three fifty a month. When you're 55, you go down to Baden Baden and forget the whole scene. <laughs> So anyway, all they want me to do, I sign these requisitions. Liquid oxygen, I don't know what it is, I'm signing Warner von Warner, and every month, 350, there it is, like clockwork. <laughs> anyway, make a long story short, we lose the war. <laughs> and the Americans come to me, you know, and I've been getting offers from the Russians and all that, and they say, look, Warner, you know, we've seen your name on some of the requisitions, and, uh, How'd you like to be involved in the American Missile Program, you know? I said, look, actually, I didn't have that much to do with it, you see. I mean, I was at this party in Stuttgart, see? <laughs> they said, ne never mind, never mind, we need a name. No, we so anyway, I, I, I took the job, and uh, there it is, 450 a month. When I'm 55, I go down to Fort Lauderdale, and <laughs> it's a pretty good deal. Well, uh, Dr. Von Warner, our time is running out on us. Uh, we have now put a man in space. The Russians, some two or three weeks before that, had put a man in space. Was this the eventual plan of the German missile program to put a man in space? Oh, we, we put a man in space. Oh, sure, back in uh, 1940. I put my brother-in-law, Herman, I put him on. <laughs> Well, now, that's amazing because, of course, the, the big problem we found uh, putting a man in space was the problem of reentry. And apparently, in 1940, you had already solved that problem. Well, what problem is this you're talking about?
Well, Dr. Von Warner, we want to thank you very much for stopping by and wish you continued success. Well, thank you very much. Now, are you going to give me the money or are you send a check to me? <laughs> This was another Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. I have to lay low for a while So I'll be staying here inside It's too dangerous out in the world I'll see you on the other side I'm in my quarantine In my little place too high My heart is aching and I'm missing you I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side We're all in for a bumpy ride Without you here, I hold on to this phone so tight. Then I whisper you a good night kiss. I'll see you on the other side. When I crawl out of my cage, when the world is purified, I will find you and I promise this. I'll see you on the other side. On the other side, and I'll meet you with arms open wide. See you on the other side. See you on the other side. See you on the other side, and I'll meet you with arms open wide. See you on the other side. it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner program another one that went flying by as I'm sure tomorrow's will as well I want to say thanks to my guests um, veteran Forbes journalist Dirk Smiley author of uh, the business of tomorrow the visionary life of Harry Guggenheim before that uh, a former uh, minister of finance from Bermuda author of a new spy thriller triangle of treason Bob Richards, and we started out this morning with uh, talking about green jobs with Michaela Presco from E2. Anyway, I'll see you tomorrow, everybody. Good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. 
Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.